Hello, I'm Sarah Vine, and this is Sarah Vine's Female Half Hour from Mail Plus. I'm joined this week, as every week, by my friend and co-host Imogen Edwards-Jones. Hello, Imogen. Bonjour. What's on your mind this week? Oh, God, so many things. Well, I have two things on my mind. <laughs> oh, okay, go Two on very on. important go things. Go on. First of all, mm. asparagus season has come early. <laughs> now, I know you think I'm being stupid, but it's quite an important moment <laughs> In my calendar, because I do like a bit of asparagus <laughs> with some lemon butter. Do you? Yes, I do. Well, all I always know eat is... them with one's fingers, of course. Never yes. with a knife, fork. No, all I know is that apparently everyone gets asparagus wee. Yes, but twenty percent of the population can't smell it. Oh gosh, that must be some interesting genetic throwback. I know. Why do I know also, such what, rubbish? Also, what would be the genetic advantage of not being able to smell asparagus <laughs> wee? <laughs> I had no idea. Maybe the, they're superior. Maybe they're The other thing that's been worrying me, and mm. I am very worried about this, mm. is poor Prince Andrew. Right. Poor Prince Andrew can't afford anymore to live in his very nice house, yeah. which is called Royal, Royal Lodge, Lodge. Yes. Which he bought off the... Leased, I think. Leased for mm. a, 75 years. Mm. Bought it for a million pounds. And mm. the problem is, apparently, that it needs work doing. Right. And he can't afford to do that because nasty Prince Charles, no, King Charles, I must stop calling him Prince Charles, <laughs> has said that because he's no longer a working royal, he can't have any, right. any moolah. Well, seeing as he doesn't have a job, he should take a leaf out of Katie Price's book yes. and do a mucky mansion. Exactly. Now, I think... What have he you could seen do, that show? It's yeah, fascinating. It's, it's, it's hilarious. Yeah. What, what, so, Andrew could get, he could do a course as a plumber, mm. he could do a plumbing course. Yes. And also, that would also give him an income, should he want it, because plumbers make a lot of money. And also, I would pay extra extra mm. to have Prince Andrew come and do my plumbing. God, so would I. Wouldn't that be fun? Ooh. And I'm sure he Hello, get... sir. Come Hello. in, sir. Hello, sir. Do come in, sir. Would Shall you like I... come... Oh, sir. Yeah, absolutely, sir. And also, I'm sure Fergie would help because she's very game and mm. very sweet. She's adorable. And they could sell the rights to one of those television stations mm. and they could do a sort of escape to the chateau slash yeah. mucky mansion. Mm. And I think that's a genius idea. Why aren't get... you working as a commissioning editor <laughs> of Channel 4? That is a genius idea. I think we put a proposal. Fergie would go for that. You she know, would she has done through. TV. She's done TV. She will, She did TV in America, didn't she? Did she? Yes. No, she's very good on the telly oh. box. She has her own YouTube channel. Mm. Yes. Reading and, you know, she'd be brilliant and in dungarees yep. and yep. a sensible pair of flip-flops. Yes. And a scrunchy. Scrunchy. Yeah. Doing sparky work. Yeah. Doing tracing. Yes. Why don't you pop that on a side of A4 <laughs> and put it through their letterbox? That's a good idea. Anyway, I, I'm sure he'll find a solution, but that's my suggestion, mm. Sir Prince Andrew, in case you want it. Yes. And I won't so. charge you any money for that idea. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, coming up on today's show, Roald Dahl's books are to be updated. I don't like the use of the word updated. I think no. we should use the word raped yes. and defiled. Destroyed. Totally destroyed. <laughs> yes. Ruined. By, ruined by their publishers in an effort to make them more inclusive. Uh, inclusive? Mm. Yes, inclusive. Um, what does that mean? It means, I don't know, exactly. Anyway, we'll be talking to sociologist and emeritus professor Frank Ferredi about mm. why this announcement has been so unpopular. And after a year of war in the Ukraine, mm. a UK charity is continuing their efforts to support animals who have been caught in the middle of the fighting. We will be speaking to some of the people who are directly involved in trying to help during this crisis. Roald Dahl's books have long been regarded as an essential part of childhood reading. Mm -hmm. But now there are plans to revise these titles to suit a more modern, and I put that in quotes, <laughs> I like audience. the use of quotation marks there. 
and quite a lot of people across, including me. And me. And you. Yes. And I hope Frank Ferreira. Yes, uh, yes, Frank, who hopefully is you're joining us. Emeritus <laughs> 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 Professor of Sociology at the University of Kent, who is joining us now. Mm. Now, Frank, I have to say that my main objection to this is quite simply this. The world is a horrible place. Yes. And the genius of Roald Dahl's books is that they reflect that in a brilliant way that is easy for children to understand. You may as well get used to it, basically. So you may as well get used to it. <laughs> you may as well get used to the people that if you, you know, the people calling you fat, yeah. ugly, whatever, yeah. stupid, etc. And why his books are so brilliant is that, is that they have, and I, I do think the main thing about parenting as a parent is to prepare your child for the general unpleasantness of mm. life on this planet and how to cope with it. And I think that Roald Dahl's books do that very mm. effectively. And if you start sanitizing them like this, they might as well just read Chip and Biff. <laughs> what do you think, Frank? Am I mad? I think that even uh, Chip and Biff are going to be uh, rewritten fairly soon because we have an army of uh, offense archaeologists who are looking for things to be offended by. And I think you're right, but I think there's an even more profound problem here, which is that the people, the sensitivity readers who are rewriting Roald Dahl are all, in a sense, insulting the readers. They basically mm. say that children and adults are not really uh, able to manage the text that people have been reading for a very, very long time. Mm. And they're infantilizing both children and adults in the course of doing that because mm. they assume that, you know, we're not capable of dealing with these so-called difficult, sensitive kind of issues. Whereas, in fact, human history demonstrates that children are phenomenally resilient. They read all kinds of fairy tales, which are far more violent and far more uh, challenging than these books that we're talking about. So to me, it is an insult to the reader above all mm. that gets me, not just simply the fact that they're censoring and imagining that they've got a right to determine how children should be socialized and how children should be acquainted with the problems of everyday life. I totally agree with you. It also, it's the arrogance of the person who's making these decisions. I don't know who you, these people even are. They're and, all, and they're why all... are they allowed to make a decision well, about what my children can read? Exactly. I mean, and the who other, are they? Well, I, they, I assume they're all woke, twenty-year-old junior publishing it just assistants. Seems, there's no. Why are we not allowed to say? Actually, do you know what? I'd rather have the version yeah. with the fat and the yeah. thick and the and the stupid in, please. Exactly. I mean, the other thing to say is that it's not only an insult to the reader; it's an insult to the writer. And although yeah. he is dead, I mean, he does. He should have some agency mm. in this, don't you think? Yeah, it, it totally is. It kind of it's a kind of violation of mm. the integrity of the text and of the author's decision. And one of the things that concerns me is that now there is a tendency to read history backwards and mm -hmm. go through old texts and almost kind of rewrite them in a way that is flatteries their own sensibility. And when you look at the people who are these sensitivity readers, I think what's very interesting about them is the very, the very fact that they are called sensitivity readers mm. indicates that they have a template orientation. And the last thing that sensitivity means in my vocabulary is when you have this template uh, set of rules that you live by. So it's a misnomer. They're not sensitivity reader. They're offense archaeologists. They're looking for things that people might be offended with, and that's their career. They're, 
you have no idea how happy they are when they find they're mining real- for insults, mm. aren't they? They're mm. mining for insults. Yeah, it, it also, also as speaking of somebody who does try and write and so a fine sentence, the idea that somebody can pick up your piece of literature, yeah, and with a total disregard to the musicality of a sentence, to the the images that you're creating, mm. to the rhythm the of rhythm, the words, yeah. and the idea that they could destroy it. I mean, can I just read one to you just here? It says, this is from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and it said, Mrs. Salt was a great fat creature with short legs, and she was blowing like a rhinoceros. Mm. It was yeah. the original. It is now, Mrs. Salt was so out of breath, she was blowing like a rhinoceros. I mean, that's just... It, it, it's just the, the it rhythm... Well, it's, joy it's taken gone. away. It takes away all the artistry. Yeah, exactly. And it's like taking the rape of the Sabines mm. and deciding that, you know, because it's got rape in it, you're going to rub out all of those images. Mm. And this is the whole point about these things. And it's not just books, it's art as well. They are cultural snapshots. Mm. And they tell you something about the time in which they were created as well as everything else, don't they? And if you go back and do that, you're trying to alter history. Yeah. You're destroying culture basically because what you're doing is you're rewriting and cultural ideals and you're reinterpreting cultural symbols and cultural uh, sort of institutions in such a way that they are no longer what they were so the whole context between which human beings have evolved and all the issues that they reacted to are flattened mm. out and mm. basically what we deal with are you know sabines who resemble identity political activist of the 21st mm. century rather than mm. who they were in those days. Yeah, but also there's no grit in your oyster and you need the grit to create the pearl. The idea that there's absolutely, you know, your life is entirely anodyne mm. and it's got nothing going on in it. It just means that you'll become anodyne yourself. Yeah. And don't you find that sometimes you read something that upsets you, kind of mm. catch you unaware and you kind of feel something has happened and the very fact that you had this emotional reaction becomes this unforgettable experience that you mm-hmm. learn from. And so many times I remember reading uh, Ulysses by James Joyce and finding that kind of intense drive in the rhythm that he has mm. of setting. You know, I, I could barely keep up with it. And at the time I said, My, you know, I, I'm not going to read this anymore. But the next day you realize that you're not a different person because mm-hmm. you've been exposed to this upsetting, you know, sort of moment in that book. And we're going to lose all that if Mm. we allow these uh, uh, junior censors to basically dominate our literature. Also, you won't have a generation of children who fall in love with words. Well, no, because as you read from those two sentences, you totally... The juice has gone. You take all... (laughs) You you eradicate any of the beauty out of it. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, it's no coincidence that the Dahl estate has entered into a sort of Faustian pact with Netflix. And many people saying that this is driven by the fact that Netflix, you know, it doesn't want to get cancelled. What are they scared of? I mean, what what are they it? scared of? I mean, why, Frank, why are these big, powerful institutions so frightened of the sort of minority wokery? Because mm. it is quite a small group of people who feel this way. I think something very interesting has happened in our cultural institutions, which is that they become re-educated and re-socialized in the mm. last 20 and 30 years to the point at which they feel that any advocacy of identity politics, any demonstration of offense is something that you as a cultured individual need to acknowledge. And the way you acknowledge it is by rolling over 
and mm. basically allowing young people to do whatever they want. And in the publishing world in particular, but also in the media, there is not constant civil war, but there's a kind of pressure upon the big corporates to fall in line. And, and many of the corporates have learned this. I don't know if you've been reading what's been going on in the New York Times, for example. It's one of the wokest newspapers in the world. I have people complaining that it's not woke enough. So you have all these trans activists demanding a complete rewriting of the language they use. They want the language changed in line with their proclivities. And if the New York Times reacts in that kind of a way, then you know that you're in trouble and that Netflix is going to fall. And in fact, Netflix has been leading the way in relation to this. I mean, if you look at their program, they already know that what's going to happen if they overstep the mark and they already accommodated to that. But the thing is, is that culturally, I mean, you know, for example, there are lots of things that I can think of in the culture that I find much more offensive than the word <laughs> fat. For example, Salman Rushdie being shot in the eye. Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, but there are so many things that are more offensive than yes. a 30-year-old children's book yes. that has slightly fruity language in it. It's not so, even that so, fruity, what, So why is it that some things are okay but it's you know that it's not okay to say fat but it's okay to dress up as a sadomasochistic sex pest mm. on television yeah. and feed that to children can you explain that to me frank because i'd love to know what that is all about <laughs> i think that what's happened is that in the last 20 30 years sexuality has become seen as like the defining feature of who we are we are defined by our so-called sexual not our sex but our sexuality and sexuality is one of those very plastic terms that by definition invites, you know, dozens and dozens of different sexualities. So you now have this grotesque spectacle in Sheffield where they've invited this kinky Canadian artist to talk about trans culture to children in a library. And they oh, think, yes. Ooh, this is so sensitive. This is her sexuality or his sexuality. And all you got to do is go on that particular terrain and what you and I might find grotesque and kind of nauseating, they would see as a genuine expression of their sexuality. And from their mm -hmm. point of view, it's people like myself who basically object to that, who will then be denounced as being both insensitive and transphobe or whatever phobe uh, is the latest term that they're, they're using. So something very important has changed. I, I, I picked up on this a year ago when I noticed, for example, that in British and American schools, we no longer talk about sex education. Mm. We talk about sexuality education. And although they both have the word sex in it, it means something very, very different. It's not very about different. human reproduction and, and what that means. It's about identity politics and it's about gender principally. Yeah, but the question of what you find offensive is a very personal yeah. thing. And why is it okay to find some things offensive and not okay to find mm. other things offensive. But also this is sort of preemptively guarding against offence because nobody, as far as I know, has complained that Mrs Salt was described as fat. No. Nobody's written a letter to no. say, uh, you've upset me. Yeah. So they're preempting a future offence, which is something that's actually quite creepy. It's just moronic, but I just think that it's the sort of low-hanging fruit, speak, isn't, isn't it? it? It's things which are easy. It's, it's easy to... I mean, there are so many more important things to worry mm. about than the use of the word fat in a Roald Dahl book, and yet here we are. We are, and, and in fact, it's not even just preempting, it's actually creating an offence that mm -hmm. does not exist. So in the very act of using your offence radar to discover terms and words that can no longer or shouldn't be used in mm. case they might offend somebody, you're actually uh, kind of inciting people to react in this way. And this is something 
that's happened in the universities where when trigger warnings were introduced, nobody, mm. everybody, everybody laughed at it. But then after a while, once people begin to think that triggering is a real problem, the students and the staff begin to go on board with it and demand more and more trigger warnings. So what begins as a potential problem is mm. now an actual problem that you need to kind of deal with. And basically what you then do is you quarantine children and young people mm. from anything that is remotely troubling. Well, of course, the, because the point yeah. of going to university is to expand your mind. Mm. It's not to have all of your sort of narrow world views mm. reinforced. It's to be challenged intellectually mm. and to have to... So, you know, it's fine to have a conversation about why Charlie and the Chocolate Factory may use outdated language and outdated mm. concepts. But actually changing the original to erase it is counterproductive because totally. if you do that, you sort of posit the notion that these things have never existed. And it's yeah. good to know. But it was also, it doesn't stretch the mind at all. I no. mean, I have a friend of mine who is a professor at an American university who's teaching international relations. And she did a lecture on the, um, the Angolan Civil War. And these are very intellectual, supposedly, students. She had to produce a trigger warning, at which point 5% of her class walked out of the lecture because they didn't want to see the photographs of the Angolan Civil War. And she's going, yeah. well, why are you on this course in the first place? I mean, why put yourself through the agony of turning up to the class to sort of listen to the trigger warning and then with a straight face walk straight out again? You use the word outdated and outdated ideas and terms. Mm. and that's a word we should think about not using because outdated basically gives them the moral authority. Mm. Because who, who decides what is outdated and what's an outdated sensibility? At the moment, if I say something that you know, the woke people disagree with, they always tell me, Frank, you don't get it. Right? Mm. You don't get it because you're older than we are. So there's an assumption that... Uh, rather than be wisdom coming with age. Well, that's age. very offensive because it's ageist. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's triggered, that's triggered me yeah, already. I'd be, yeah, I'd be triggered by that. <laughs> yes. You should have said to them, I'm afraid I can't discuss this because no. you're ageist and I'm very triggered by all of yes. this and I'm going to have to go and have a lie down in a darkened room mm. and a nice cup of chamomile tea yes. to calm my nerves. Yes. I'm cover myself in a blanket because I'm elderly. <laughs> um, the other thing that, that is terrifying about this sort of sensitivity readers, etc., is that a lot of authors are now self-censoring because they've decided that, yeah. you know, where angels fear to tread. Yeah. The idea is that you're not allowed to write about certain subjects. Well, or... like if you're a white author, you can't write about a no. black person anymore. No, you can't. If you're a straight author, you can't write about gay people. No. You can't. So that's ridiculous. But Imogen writes books and she's always having her jokes taken out. They are. Yes, I did. I, I've just got a book coming out in a couple of weeks and it had to be sent well, to Maybe they're not good jokes. Maybe that's <laughs> they were. They, they were quite rude, to be fair, Frank. But they were. T I had about five or six taken out. They all know yeah. that's a bit too edgy. Mm. It's the yeah. whole point of the book is it's, it's edgy. Yeah, exactly. I, I know. I just got back a letter from uh, my my editor saying that they've approved my this book I kind of put forward, Ooh. but they think my, the tone that I'm using is too strong. And is there oh. any way you know sort of uh, reel back my uh, my language opinions, and, but ideas? It was more like. <laughs> You know, the point is, I'm very passionate about the subject, what I'm writing mm. about. Naturally, I just kind of get carried away. But that's the whole buzz of writing a book, that you can express so yourself. What did you say to them when they said that? What did you say? 
well, I learn to deflect and I always, I'll have a think mm. about it. And then I do what I think needs What's to be done. What's the subject? The book is called The War Against the Past. I mean, that's right. what I had so far. It's really about uh, the yeah. attempt to, you know, sort of negate the past by, you know, all these cultural accomplishments. I want to read that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Imogen's book is called Have You Got Anything Stronger? <laughs> Which, in the context of this conversation, is quite relevant. It's too yes. early for that yet, but yeah. <laughs> well, I just hope that we don't carry on down this path, because mm. otherwise, pretty much the whole of the world is going to have to erase itself pretty soon. Well, that very famous comment: they came for, and they kept, they've come for Roald Dahl. What's next? Yes, exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm afraid I agree with you, Sarah, but I think we're only seeing the beginning of this. Yeah. Because there's no strong resistance at the moment, you know, especially within the cultural domain. I don't see anybody, no influential minority that is brave enough to stand up and systematically. Well, I have to say that the response, scared, the response to this has been quite robust. And, and the other thing I would say but is, that, is it, that if you take it back to the whole trans debate, the response to that has been very unpleasant mm -hmm. and it has taken about 10 years but we have, we are starting to reach a place where a little bit of mm. sort of, uh, there's some know, sort of kickback, some sort of common sense mm. is starting to break out. Mm. So I think it's really important that we push back against this stuff. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, I think the trans issue is very interesting because it's the only issue uh, in which, in the Anglo-American sphere, ordinary people have taken up the, the cause, and a lot of mm. parents much to their cost, have realized that this is a very dangerous phenomenon. And mm. they've been at the forefront of mobilizing. And I think that Sturgeon would not have been forced out if it hadn't, hadn't been for the fact that a lot of ordinary Scottish people said, we're going to leave the SMP and go somewhere else unless this changes. Mm. Yeah, I mean, enough is enough. I mean, I, I do think they're about to elect someone who is the polar opposite, and that's probably too far in the other direction. You yes. know, this woman who's a sort of fundamentalist Christian yeah, and who doesn't is, believe yeah. in sex before marriage. Whatever happened to the happy medium? Why do we have to live in a world of extremes? With well, the gentle Why? status quo. Whatever happened to that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is an interesting moment we're living in because there are people like us and we're quite happy to uh, accommodate to others. You know, I'm, yes. if somebody has got strong views. Live and let live. Mm. Yeah, yeah but, but they want to destroy our identity. That's the interesting thing is they think that we're not allowed to be who we are. We can't yeah. use names and the pronouns that we want to use. There's a kind of level of intolerance that almost reminds me of the religious wars of the 16th and 17th century. And, and they're not even aware of just how intolerant they've become. No, and of course they would consider themselves to be Very tolerant. super tolerant. Yes, that's the whole. That's, that's the, the irony, irony, isn't that's it? That's the yes. terrible, terrible yes. irony of it yeah. is that all this is being done in the name of tolerance. Yeah, tolerance. Yes, and not not, well, be, not being offended. Well, thank you. Anyway, yes. we shall continue to fight the good fight. I hope your book gets published, and I hope you don't tone it down. Yeah, no, no danger of that. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. I, for one, will certainly be reading it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure thank you, Frank. Yeah, bye-bye. Thank you. It's been a year since Russia invaded Ukraine, triggering a crisis which has seen their citizens fleeing homes and cities razed to the ground. Caught in the middle of this are pets, animals, who now have nobody to care for them. So we thought we'd catch up mm. with some of the people who are trying to help. 
And to that end, we're joined by Anna Wade, Public Affairs Manager of Blue Cross, and Greg Tully, Director of Save the Dogs, who is currently in Odessa. Mm. And also Katerina, who herself escaped with her cat, who is confusingly called Mouse. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's very good. It's very sweet. I like that. And your dog, Katerina. Remind me your dog's name. Actually, it was not my dog. It's a dog of my my friends, one of my friends, because we... Okay. What was it called? Alisa. Alisa. So tell us your story. Should we start with Katerina? Because you've actually lived this. So tell us your story a little bit about what happened. When did you arrive here in the UK? Uh, we arrived at uh, last May, at May last year. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. So almost okay. one year. And you, and you have your animals with you, or you ha- you have one animal with you? No, now it's only one animal, and uh, it's mouse. Actually, <laughs> this confusing. It's mouse. Yeah. How is how is mouse coping with the transition? Does uh, mouse like the English cats? Probably not. No, I imagine not. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I have many many different stories about uh, her friendship with other cats. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Is mouse a boy or a girl? Is a mouse a lady cat or yeah, a gentleman cat? Yeah, it's lady. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely oh. a lady. Yeah. Katerina, should we, should we, it's probably easy to start from where are you actually from in the Ukraine and exactly how did the initial war impact you right at the very beginning? Yeah, so um, actually uh, almost one year ago we left our, our home. We live in the central part of Ukraine. We lived in uh, Poltavska region, it's called, so it's very close to Kiev. It's uh, neighbors of Kiev. Mm-hmm. Actually, at March, it, it was far, 5th of March, uh, we decided to do something because it was too much dangerous and too much close to my house, actually, and to my uh, village where we lived from. So uh, we don't have a choice. We take our cat, our friend, because she, this lady, she was very close to my family. But it was a small problem because she uh, she has a big dog. It's retriever dogs, so it's a huge dog. Mm. And actually, I have uh, my own dog, and uh, his name is Rocky. He stayed in Ukraine because we couldn't take two dogs and one cat and in one small car, so it was too much. Mm. And uh, then it was many different countries with uh, animals, with uh, family, and. Um, with my son, he was nine last year. Now he's mm. ten. But actually, animals was not not really bad. It was not easy for them because uh, it's a food, of water, of uh, toilet things, and mm. cat and the dog in one in one car. It's you can imagine how it can be. <laughs> mm. Yeah, but for today, it's everything okay. Have you found it uh, quite a comfort having your animals mm. with you? Has it helped? I mean, obviously your situation is almost impossible, but does it make a difference having the animals with you? Yeah, of course, because it was a lot of problem uh, where, when we tried to find the place for living, you know, because mm-hmm. um, <laughs> hopefully we have around a lot of very, very kind and uh, lovely people who try all the time to help us because... Mm. In Romania, actually, we live in a hotel with five stars. <laughs> but <laughs> actually, this hotel, um, it was one, in, it was only one way where we can stay because we don't have enough money. We cannot pay about uh, everything. So, mm. yeah, but uh, the owner of this hotel, they told us that uh, we cannot say anyone that we have a cat. 
So mm-hmm. we, we need to hide mouse and uh, she lived more than one month only in one room. So she even couldn't... In the bathroom or something? Did he put her in the bathroom? Uh, when, uh, yeah, then when Lady tried to clean uh, our hotel room, yeah, we, we hide it in the bathroom. But <laughs> Was that a very specific decision that you made to bring your animals? Because I imagine lots of other people have left their pets behind. It's making an exodus which is terrifying, all the more difficult, if you see what I mean, to bring if you decide to bring your animals. You know, I can now I I can tell you the truth that uh, in that moment uh, for me, for my family, it was a um, very hard decision to left uh, actually animals at home mm. because uh, we we didn't know what will be what will be in that situation because mm. uh, soldiers were very very close so. And my son, it's uh, his cat, mm. and actually we left our dog at home, and it's uh, our big trouble for today because um, mm. we cannot take it to UK or any any country because it's it's a dog when the, he used to live only in a big uh, big space. He cannot live in a small mm. flat or housing or you know something. So yeah, it it was a big uh, big, big big decision, but we we cannot. We we can leave it. We can leave. But I think these things become very important. I mean, I think if I tried to leave my home without my cat, my daughter would simply not come. I <laughs> wouldn't speak to you ever I mean, again. She really wouldn't speak to me ever again. But the Ukrainians so, are more mad about animals than actually the English. I think. What do you think, Greg? Where are you in lovely Odessa? Yeah, actually, I'm on the way to Odessa. I'm in a town of Izmail, which is a little bit closer to the border with Romania. But um, yeah, I completely agree. I've been really impressed by how passionate a lot of Ukrainian people are about their animals. Um, so I work for Save the Dogs and we um, work with a number of partners in you know, Kharkiv area, Mykolaiv, Odessa, where we send them tons of pet food, other supplies, and um, and it's amazing. You know, people, you know, we work with people who started an animal shelter just with their own bare hands and funded entirely out of their own pockets. Um, just a couple hours ago, people were showing us around to all the hundreds of dogs and cats that they feed. And they just do this, you know, before work, after work, with their own money. It's it's really amazing. There's loads of footage of soldiers as well, at which all of whom they seem to have sort of cat mascots and dog yeah, mascots. There's one, there's one brilliant soldier who saved a cat. This is not in Ukraine, but who saved a cat in the Turkish earthquake, and now oh. the cat is living on his shoulder. <laughs> yes. I mean, it is, it is extraordinary, the connection that humans have. Mm. But I think particularly in time of war, it is, it, or in time of conflict generally, or, you know, misfortune, mm. it is very comforting to have your animals with you. I mean, Anna, what are you finding? Yeah, I would definitely agree. When we were approached by people fleeing Ukraine mm. obviously many were desperately we actually as well had lots of sponsors who were contacting on behalf of their families as they were trying to make those arrangements so many people were trying to make sure that you know families had already been split up from their homes they didn't want to see them having to lose or leave behind their pets as well and some of the great work that we were funding with the help of Save the Dogs was Save the Dogs actually had a border hub where people could refugees as they crossed into Romania could collect pet carriers food mm. etc because what was one of the things they were finding was that actually people got their animals all that way and then were having to abandon them at the airport because they had no way of taking them mm. on so if we can just 
make those tiny little things to make someone's journey better. To make I mean, sure. I, th- I think the thing to say is, that, I mean, I think I don't know how you feel, but I think that animals are the family. Mm. I mean, they certainly are in my family. I mean, I yeah. just, it'd be unthinkable to leave them, really. Oh. No. How, how difficult is it to get them across the border into the UK? It was, it was challenging. Um, especially to the UK, because obviously we have very strict rules mm-hmm. around quarantine and there's some diseases that are present like rabies in Ukraine mm-hmm. that we don't want getting into the UK. And that was something that the government, obviously, they did alleviate and expedite visas for some of these pets so that they could enter with a mandatory quarantine stay. So everyone was doing everything possible but obviously there was a period where the animal had to be separated from the owner. Like it had to be in quarantine. Yeah, uh, yeah, they mm. had to go through quarantine. Quarantine at Blue Cross facilities didn't look like quarantine at a regular kennels. We mm. provided more of a home environment, although not quite a home environment, and we were able mm. to send regular updates and videos, etc., to Katerina and our, mm. the other owners so they could try and keep that contact. Because for many, it was really traumatic for them to be split up with their pets at that stage. Yeah, absolutely. Greg, what are you on your way to Odessa to do when you get there? Yeah, we're going to meet with a lot of our partners in the area and get a better understanding of their needs. You know, just seeing, I mean, they, they send us hundreds of photos of, of photos and videos every month of, um, you know, the, way, the ways they're helping animals, the way they're distributing the dog houses and the food that we've donated. But it's important for us to see it firsthand so that we can plan our next steps. And um, Are there a lot of stray dogs out there? Yes. I mean, are you finding that there's a lot of strays? What are you doing with them? Yeah, it's, it's a really tough question. I mean, Ukraine had a big stray dog and cat population even before the war. And now, you know, 14 million Ukrainian people have fled their homes. I mean, some of them, like Katerina, were able to travel with their animals, but a lot of them didn't. And so... It, there's a, a truly frightening number of abandoned pets. You know, not not even street dogs that have lived their lives on the streets, but pets that were living in somebody's house and now they're wandering the streets aimlessly trying to find food. And so it's really a crisis. Our producer has a question. He wants to know how easy it is to get around at the moment in the Ukraine. Are you are you finding it hard or? It's um, surprisingly easy. I mean, going through mm. going across the border is complicated. They they really checked our vehicle carefully, and there are military checkpoints every so every few kilometers or so. But um, yeah, we don't need any special documents. You don't need to get a visa in advance. It's it's actually shocking how um, how easy it is really? to travel Gosh. around here. Yeah, I mean. What do the checkpoints do? I mean, um, how does that work? I mean, generally, um, there are Ukrainian soldiers who will just briefly, you know, open the car doors, look in the back, sort of poke around in your baggage and make sure that you're not carrying guns or, or weapons. So it's, I mean, there are a, a lot of military around, you know, especially in Odessa, but it's its actually easy to travel. And honestly, I can say that the military we've encountered has been extremely friendly. <laughs> I mean, everyone from the Ukrainian... And is the infrastructure generally working? Um, I mean... A lot of people are depending on generators now. You know, the electricity goes on right. and off through the day. Um, a lot of areas have running water, some areas don't, but um, there's... You know, p- people adapt. It's been going on for a year now, which is, is horrific. But, um, yeah, people have bought generators. Water is trucked in from some areas to other areas. And, and people are getting by. It's, I mean, the economy is really a huge problem. A, a lot of people haven't earned any money in a year. You know, a lot of the businesses are shut down and are, they've been that way for a long time. So 
that's really a huge problem. You know, people are just struggling to feed their families. Um, people, I mean, a lot of the people who run animal shelters have no, they, get, they don't get any donations anymore. Um, there are no adoptions anymore. So that's, that's really become a, a, a crisis. Do you think that's because donations, I mean, what, what, why are people not donating anymore? Do you think they've just sort of... Well, you know, 14 million people have left the country. And so a lot of people who used yeah. to own businesses or who used to patronize businesses just aren't doing it anymore. And there's just a, you know, the sense of worry means people aren't spending money like they used to. They aren't going out to eat. They're sort of doing the minimum. No. Um, there's no spare cash, is exactly. there? And they're worried about the future. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if you mm -hmm. don't know if you're going to have electricity in an hour or not, um, you're probably not going to go to the cinema. Is there somebody who's coordinating all these animals so that people, if they want to, can adopt them? I mean, I, you know, I've done some work with charities that get dogs from places like Turkey and, you know, they, we bring them to the UK and they, and they are adopted by people here. There's, there's Sophie from Romania at yes, the moment who, is, Romania, who yeah. seems to be yes. all over the internet. Yeah, a friend of mine adopted a Turkish dog. Yeah, yes. yeah we, we do see adoption, but for us, that's not necessarily the best solution because mm. it's very cost intensive to bring a yeah. dog over. What we'd rather see is those funds channeled into providing the best care for the animals in country mm. and to, to mm. build back what has been lost because of the war. So a lot of mm. shelter infrastructure was damaged. We're now seeing an explosion of puppies and kittens born because, you know, there, there's mm. a whole lack of neutering. So to prevent further problems and to, to have the maximum impact, we want mm. to be helping those dogs in Ukraine. Mm. Also, we don't know. People might be going back for their pets in, you know, mm. hopefully soon, yeah. but, but you know, in the next year or so. Yeah. So we don't want to cause more problems by taking pets out of the environment they're now used to and putting them, as Katerina said, into flats mm. and stuff potentially unsuitable in the UK. Katerina, have you had any updates about your dog in central Ukraine? Do you have anyone looking after him? Yeah, hopefully we have a good neighbours, uh, so... One in a month, uh, we can send a parcel with the food, with uh, different sweets. So, yeah, I hope he's happy with uh, our neighbors. I just hope that in some day it can be possible that we can be with our animals together. So it's only my everything about um, thinking all the time. Yes. And how's your son with, with your cat in the UK? How are they together? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a very, very... Uh, long friendship because um, we has uh, we has a dog and uh, it was uh, five years ago she died so it was a, a big uh, trauma for my son and then um, we uh, our neighbors they give us this small small gray cat and she was very very small so we called her mouse because she was like a mouse more <laughs> than a, a cat so now it's a good friendship and he was very, very worried when uh, she was, uh, he actually, she, she, she were at a very nice place in uh, Blue Cross and uh, he was absolutely sure that she's okay and fine, that she, she has everything. But uh, yeah, be honest with you that uh, he crying all the time because it's, um, it's like a friend. You know. Yeah, of course, of course. And when you've lost lots of other things, it's something that mm, you can hold exactly, on to. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Well, Greg, I wish you luck. I hope you have a nice time as much as possible. Yeah, <laughs> um, in beautiful and, Odessa. And yeah. In beautiful Odessa. Mm. And thank you so much, Katerina. I, I pray and hope that you get home soon. We all do. And thank you, Anna. If people want to help or get involved or volunteer, what do they do? 
the Blue Cross Pet Welfare Fund, which is what is supporting the fantastic work from our partners like Save the Dogs, mm -hmm. um, is on our website. It's on our homepage, bluecross.org.uk. Brilliant. That was Anna Wade, Public Affairs Manager of Blue Cross, Greg Tully, Director of Save the Dogs. And thank you so much to Katerina for joining us. If you would like to donate or get involved, there are some links in the show notes. If you enjoy listening to The Half Hour, why not visit mailplus.co.uk slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus, me at Westminster Wag or Imogen at Imogen EJ. You've been listening to The Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Vine and Imogen Edwards-Jones. Thank you for listening. <laughs>